Episode 11, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 11, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Last episode, we talked about the wars between Sparta and Athens, the Peloponnesian Wars. We also mentioned how Sparta eventually defeated Athens, tore down the long walls, and installed a puppet government called the Thirty Tyrants. Sparta defeated Athens in 404 BC. As the battles between Athens and Sparta were going on, oddly enough, some very important philosophical questions were being asked. Questions that philosophers and theologians are still talking about to this day. The enigmatic man asking these questions was named Socrates. And though he himself wrote down nothing of his own words, it's quite possible that the only single person who wasn't a writer himself, who was more influential than Socrates, was Jesus. Though Socrates himself didn't write down any of his own works, one of his students, Plato, wrote extensively about the things that Socrates said and did. Plato, too, was in Athens during the Peloponnesian Wars. One of Plato's students, Aristotle, went on to write an enormous amount about what Plato and Socrates had already said and done, and he added his own areas of study as well. We'll look at all three of them in this episode. It's safe to say that these three guys were really the most influential trio in all of Western history in terms of their impact on how the West thinks. They were all philosophers, but philosophy in the ancient world touched every area of academics. And I'm going to apologize right now that this episode is a little bit longer than usual. In retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have tried to talk about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in one episode. It doesn't help that this is a topic that I really like, and even though I've cut out a lot of stuff out of my first draft, it's still kind of long. And also, it does make sense to talk about all three of them together because they're so interrelated, and also because they're so important to the thinking of our modern world. Much of the thinking of the modern world can be traced right back to Aristotle. Western modernism in particular, is very Aristotelian. That is the modern world and the way that we think here in the West. Very Aristotelian. The Eastern world developed without the influence of Aristotle, and it only really began to embrace modernism in the middle to late 1900s. Whether this was a good thing or not is still debatable. Modernism has given us some good things, but it has also given us some of the worst things in human history, like mechanized warfare, nuclear disasters, television, and the internet. In our modern world, philosophy is seen as kind of this small niche area of interest and only a few academic nerds and podcasters pay much attention to it. But back in the ancient world, philosophers were interested in nearly all areas of learning and conversely, all areas of learning saw themselves as philosophers. In a sense, the ancient world saw all areas of learning, even things like math, as being a part of philosophy. And philosophy just means the love of learning or the love of wisdom. Part of that viewpoint, that everything is philosophy, is because our friend Aristotle wrote about so many different areas of learning. Logics, politics, math, 
religion, science, etc. All of these things, including the metaphysical questions that modern philosophy nerds seem to be so concerned about. Another thing about philosophers back in the ancient world was that they were deeply concerned with the question of how should we live a good life and also what is a good life? They weren't just concerned with abstract questions like forms and the ultimate nature of reality. They were concerned with how you should live as a person. Modern philosophy is much less concerned about that. Ancient philosophers also asked a lot of questions about the nature of reality, like what is the world ultimately made of? Some said fire, some said water, some said atoms, some just said chaos. They also asked, how did the world organize itself? What's the organizing principle? Why is there something other than just chaos? Philosophers also talked a lot about virtue and what made a man or woman a virtuous person. Virtue is a notoriously difficult idea to define, and philosophers spent a lot of time and words on it. Another related question was, what is good? Like virtue, goodness is hard to define. We all know it when we see it, but how do you define the concept of good? For example, we all know a good dog when we see it, and we pet it, and we say, good boy. We know a good dog when we see it, and conversely, we know a chihuahua when we see that. But what makes a good dog good? Yes, the golden retriever is better than the chihuahua. Everyone knows that, but how do we know that? Goodness is hard to define. So, a corollary question that the ancient philosophers liked to ask was, how do you live a good life? And what is it that makes life good? What is it that's good in life that's worth living? Sort of like virtue, what makes a man or woman good? I would love to go into these uh, questions and spend a lot of time talking about the philosophical questions uh, around goodness and virtue, but this is, this is a history podcast, not a philosophy podcast. If you want a philosophy podcast, though, I would highly recommend a podcast called The History of Philosophy by Peter Adamson. It's my second favorite podcast right after The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. I cannot recommend these two podcasts highly enough. They are both fantastic, funny, engaging. They're both really good speakers, and they are way more thorough than I'm being here. Uh, and also, both Peter Adamson and Mike Duncan have written some books on these topics that came out of their podcasts, so I highly recommend their books as well. Anyway, I'm not going to dig into the philosophical questions as much as I'd like to, but rather I'm going to talk about the philosophers themselves and their impact on the thinking in the West and how it made a difference in the Western world. So let's start with Socrates. There were other important philosophers in Greek history before Socrates, but we don't have any of their original work, just quotes of their work from later philosophers, including Aristotle, who wrote about many of them. We don't actually have any of Socrates' actual original work either, and as far as we can tell, Socrates didn't write down any of his thinking himself. But as I said, a lot of it was captured by his student Plato and some by another student named Xenophon as well. Socrates was born about 470 BC in a sort of suburb of Athens outside the wall. Since his parents were Athenians, this also made him a citizen of Athens. And apparently, he spent his whole life in Athens, except for being away on three military campaigns where, according to Plato, he served with distinction and participated in several battles. At some point, Back in Athens, he became a sort of wandering philosopher, getting involved in discussions with many of the famous people of Athens. 
He attracted a loose following of students, though he never seems to have run a permanent school. He also became something of an ascetic, wandering around with very little stuff on him, right? Wandering around uh, barefoot and wearing only an old ragged cloak. He was also reportedly kind of ugly. He's described as short, chubby, with bulging eyes, a big beard, and a wide upturned nose. So you could sort of picture a like homeless Santa but with an old raggedy cloak instead of a red suit, wandering around engaging people in spirited philosophical discussions. As I said, Socrates didn't leave any of his own writing, so what we know of him mostly comes from the things that his students wrote, and mostly Plato. Many of Plato's works are written in the form of a dialogue between Socrates and someone else. Usually the person Socrates is talking to ends up being the title of the doctor the dialogue. So, for example, in Plato's work, The Minnow, Socrates talks with a guy named Minnow and some others. The dialogue is about whether virtue can be taught or whether people are inherently virtuous or not, but it does touch on some other even more important topics. Socrates claims to not know what virtue is, and he asks Minnow to explain it. Whenever Minnow or the others make a statement about what virtue is, Socrates asks a question about their answer, and usually points out some logical inconsistency in their answer. Eventually, everyone kind of comes away muddled, and they leave angry and puzzled without an answer to what virtue really is or how to get it. Now, that's a good example of what happens in most of the Socratic dialogues. Someone makes a statement, Socrates asks them about it. This practice of asking questions and having people try to fully explain themselves has become known as the Socratic method. The idea of the Socratic method is that people will be more likely to actually learn something by examining their own thoughts with the aid of some skilled questions, rather than being told what to think by some other person. One of the odd things about Socrates, considering how influential he is, is that he really doesn't give answers to anything. He just pokes holes in other people's ideas. The one point that Socrates himself seems to make, and he makes this several times, is that he does not really know anything, and that acknowledging one's own lack of knowledge is the first step towards wisdom. Though, to be fair, if you were to talk to him about this, Socrates would probably ask, well, what is wisdom? And then he'd poke holes in your answer. But he does take on some of the hardest questions in all of philosophy, including the nature of the soul, religion, virtue, morals, and the nature of reality. If you look at all of Plato's work that includes Socrates, you get a picture of somewhat what Socrates believes. For example, in the Phaedo, which is a dialogue from the day that he died, he makes a pretty clear statement that he believes in the immortality of the soul. Speaking of his death, the Platonic works, the Crito and the Phaedo, describe how Socrates meets his end. Socrates, who was alive during the siege of Athens and then also alive during the time of the Thirty Tyrants, was known to be friends with at least one of those tyrants. After the tyrants were removed and a newly restored democracy was put in place, Socrates was seen potentially as an enemy of the democracy. So he was brought to court on charges of corrupting the youth of Athens, and after that he was found guilty. He was given the option of determining his own fate, and he suggested that Athens should give him free food for life. They rejected that as a punishment, and instead they gave him the penalty of death. 
On his last night while he was in prison, some of his friends came to him in prison and, and they offered him the chance to escape and go into exile, but he refused. After talking to his friends for a while, Socrates drank a poison made of hemlock and he died. His discussion about death and the afterlife and the mood in which he meets his end were captured by Plato in the, in the Crito and the Phaedo. Their description of his optimistic, consistent, and rather fearless approach to his own death was an example to many later philosophers and historical figures. To quote Peter Adamson, Socrates is trying to discover how best to live, and he's doing it even as he only has hours left to do any living. Adamson sums up Socrates' method well, too, and he says this, Socrates claimed to be ignorant about the things he was out to discover. The reason he gave for cornering the good people of Athens in the marketplace and pestering them to tell him what courage or piety or virtue in general might be was that he himself really didn't know what courage or piety or virtue was. He was desperate to find someone who could help him answer these most important questions, questions that became the basis for many of Plato's dialogues. Good quote. So Socrates dies in 399 BC, and soon his place as the most prominent philosopher in Athens is taken over by his student, Plato. It's interesting to me that Plato's works, which all include Socrates, were all written after Socrates' death. So Plato knows how Socrates lived and how he died, and in using him as a main character, he's not just creating a character who he can use to sort of pose philosophical questions. He's creating an example of what an ideal philosopher and what an ideal man can be. Before I talk more specifically about Plato himself, it's worth pointing out that it's hard to separate Socrates' philosophy from Plato's, since most of what we hear from Socrates was written by Plato, and it's written as dialogues, not as a philosophical commentary. In a philosophical commentary, it's pretty common for a philosopher to review the works of a previous philosopher and point out why that other previous philosopher is just plain wrong. But you don't see any of this kind of commentary in Plato's description of Socrates. Plato uses Socrates to investigate all sorts of really deep philosophical questions, questions that philosophers and others are still wrestling with today. And in a very real sense, Socrates, through Plato, sets the stage for all the major philosophical and theological debates that have gone on in Western history. But Socrates was all written by Plato. So they're hard to distinguish. The British philosopher A.N. Whitehead famously said, The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So, Plato was born around 424 BC, probably in Athens, though the details of his early life are sketchy. Apparently, as a young man, he studied under Socrates. Plato would have been in his early 20s when Socrates died. According to, to his writings, after Socrates' death, he traveled to Italy, Sicily, Egypt, and Cyrene, and he seems to have returned to Athens around the age of 40. And then he founded a school where he could teach the young men of Athens. This school was called the Academy. And when we talk about people being academics, it's because Plato's school is called the Academy. It's a long history of learning that we are touching when we deal with an academic topic. In addition to teaching the classic subject of grammar, music, geometry, and gymnastics to the youth of Athens, 
Plato also wrote. He wrote somewhere between 25 and 30 dialogues. There are some dialogues that bear his name that seem to not actually have been written by him, but his name may have been added to them later. Most academics agree on the 25 genuine Platonic dialogues, and the other ones are disputed. So it brings up the question, why does he write in dialogues? Most philosophers don't. His student Aristotle didn't do that. Aristotle wrote in the classic style of the philosopher. Here's my view on logic, blah, 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 blah. That's what I think. Now, Plato himself never really states his own views, though his views may be hiding, and you can parse them out. His views are hiding behind what he has Socrates or other characters say. Instead of stating his views, Plato's dialogues probe the questions and subtly make points about what the key issues are without actually answering the question definitively, which is, in itself, a philosophical point. Maybe we can't know the definitive answer. One of the other reasons he wrote in dialogues, I think, is the Socratic method. He and Socrates really seem to like the idea of getting people to question their own thinking and their own knowledge and then find the answer themselves rather than having a philosopher tell them the whole answer and tell them what to think. The dialogues themselves, in written form, are a form of Socratic method. Raising questions, asking questions, leading the reader on, helping the reader to see what's important, but never giving the reader the answer. The reader himself is left to ponder and reach his own conclusion. It's a powerful philosophical technique, and it's really hard to do well, especially in writing. It's much easier just to write down what you think on something rather than try to create a compelling story of two people searching for what you think and touching on the subtle issues around the topic. As I said in the last episode, Plato is considered one of the best writers of ancient Greek. He was just good with the language. He's up there with Homer and Aeschylus, who wrote great epic poems. Aristotle and Plato may have been equals as philosophers, but Plato was definitely the better writer. And Plato gets pride of place since he came before Aristotle, and he raises and then examines in very smooth and subtle ways the same questions that Aristotle will talk about in his own writings. One of the themes that Plato keeps coming back to is the question of how we know and judge things. So, for example, we all seem to know what justice is and that justice is better than injustice. No one will really argue against that, but how do we know? How do we judge this one thing to be better than that other thing? How do you know that this one particular four-legged platform is a stool, while that other four-legged platform is a table and, and not a stool? How do you know that this is a good table? For example, I'm working here on a table that I made myself, and to be honest, it's not that good of a table. It's kind of wobbly and uneven. It has a profound bad varnish smell. It's not a good table. But how do I know that? How do I make that judgment? Plato would say that my mind is able to tap into a whole other world of ideas where the image of the ideal table exists. I know this is not a good table because I can compare it in my head with the ideal table. Plato calls this ideal the form of the table, and he calls this other place where the ideals exist the realm of the forms. It's against these forms, these ideal images of things, that we compare the tangible things of the world. It's a sort of divine place, a spiritual reality, sort of like the mind of God. 
Plato says that the ultimate form, the most important form, is the form of the good. That is, in the realm of forms, there is this ideal, this concept of exactly what good is. And when we make a judgment on earth, like this is a bad table, it's because we can compare the table with the form of the table and also with the form of good. And the form of good is the most important form. Later, other Christian theologians and philosophers will tap into this idea. St. Augustine uses something like it in his famous definition of what good is. He says that good is anything that reflects the character of God, and that evil is anything where good is not present. It's similar to Plato's form of the good, where our earthly judgment of goodness comes from comparing it to an outside standard of goodness, either the form of the good or the character of God. Not going deeply into all the philosophy here, but just making the point that Plato saw that there was a higher reality and that we need to understand that reality to know anything. It's a metaphysical, spiritual approach to knowledge. We know things on earth because we've tapped into this higher reality, although we often forget about it. Aristotle, on the other hand, rejects this, and he says that the only way to understand anything at all is to examine the things of the actual world around us. For him, knowledge comes from examining the world. He doesn't deny the existence of the spiritual, but he says that the path to knowledge is in the material world. So, to grossly oversimplify, Plato was a spiritualist and Aristotle was a materialist, at least when it comes to how we know things. And all the other philosophers and theologians since then have had to come down on one side or the other. Before we get on to Aristotle, let's wrap up Plato. According to the Roman historian Seneca, Plato died at the age of 81 on the same day that he was born, though he doesn't tell us what day that was. He left the academy in the hands of a guy named Spusippus, and the academy went on teaching until about 83 BC. Aristotle studied and taught there for 20 years. So let's get on to Aristotle. Although Plato's works are seen today as being more artistic, subtle, and challenging than Aristotle, Aristotle had a much broader influence in antiquity. A lot of Plato's work disappeared in Europe during the Dark Ages, and it was only preserved in the Byzantine Empire and also in later Islamic schools. But most of Aristotle's work was available all through this time, so he had a huge influence on the philosophers, theologians, and students of the Middle Ages and then on into the early modern world. His work was so ubiquitous that he was often just known as the philosopher. Aristotle's works dominated philosophical and academic thinking for over a thousand years. If you were a student in the Middle Ages, most of your curriculum was from Aristotle in some way or other. Even studying the Bible was done from an Aristotelian point of view, and a lot of the work of the theologians of the Middle Ages is trying to reconcile the Bible with Aristotle. He was born around 384 BC in the city of Stagira, which is in the northern part of Greece. His father died when he was a child, and he was brought up by a guardian. At around 17, he entered Plato's academy, and he stayed there as a student and a teacher for 20 years. In 343 BC, he left Athens at the request of Philip of Macedon, who was the king of Macedon, to go tutor Philip's son Alexander. He tutored Alexander for several years, and then he went back to Athens. He founded his own school called the Lyceum, and he taught there for about 20 years. He died on the island of Euboea in 322 BC 
at the age of 61. In addition to teaching, Aristotle wrote an absolutely enormous amount of academic work. Only about a third of his works survive today, and the rest of them are known only by their titles, because some ancient authors made lists of all of his works. But even just the surviving stuff is an impressive library. Oddly enough, the things that did survive to us are not the things that Aristotle wrote for public distribution. They're things that seem to be more like lecture notes for his students. Here's another quote from Peter Adamson. Plato certainly touched on many of the topics taken up later by Aristotle, but Aristotle dominated the Western tradition in part because he produced works that focused explicitly on separate, more or less well-defined disciplines. What Aristotle left to his successors was not just a bunch of ideas and arguments, but a curriculum of study. Even today, many departments at a typical university will have names which correspond to titles or topics of books by Aristotle. Physics, psychology, zoology, literature, politics. So, okay, in addition to those topics, Aristotle also wrote on ethics, logic, rhetoric, aesthetics, theater, music, meteorology, geology, government, economics, and on the process of schooling and learning. He also wrote a very influential work on the methods of inquiry, which eventually over time leads to the scientific method. He also wrote a lot about the thinking of pre-Socratic philosophers, and in many cases, his writing is the only place where some of their thought is preserved. One of Aristotle's more famous teachings is on the idea of the golden mean. In exploring the idea of virtue, something that also Plato and Socrates spend a lot of time on, Aristotle says that virtue is usually found in pursuing the middle course, the mean, between two extremes. For example, on the idea of generosity, it's clearly not virtuous to never give anything to anyone else. But Aristotle argues it's also not virtuous to give absolutely everything away either. Courage, as another example he uses, is the mean between recklessness on one hand and cowardice on the other. He applies this to a lot of different situations and a lot of different topics, still trying to find virtue in the middle path. And it becomes one of his most famous contributions to the study of ethics. As another example... The golden mean in a history podcast would be the middle road between not even mentioning Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle on the one hand and going on about them for 10 or 12 hours on the other. So rather than violate Aristotle's principle, I shall end this episode here. Next episode, we'll talk about Aristotle's student Alexander. And here again, I will quote from Adamson who says, Alexander is to the history of conquering what Aristotle is to the history of philosophy.